Good to see you guys. And um, we're back in John today. And a few weeks ago, we saw that uh, the Jewish leaders corner Jesus and they ask him to speak plainly about who he is. Um, what they really want to know is, is he claiming to be the Messiah? And their intent is to trap him, whether he says yes or no. Um, but he doesn't say yes or no. He says something they weren't expecting, something that was, a, was more offensive to them. Um, he says, I and the Father are one. And it would have been bad enough um, that he was claiming to be the Christ to them, but here he's claiming to be equal with God. And, and, and they immediately pick up stones, we see, to stone him. Let me see if I can find where we are. There we go. And Jesus says to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And they answer him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So we see the Jesus, sorry, we see the Jewish leaders here pin Jesus down and demand that he tell them who he is. No more metaphors, no more parables. They want to hear plainly who he thinks he is, uh, who he claims to be. And, we, and when he tells them the truth, we can see that they can't handle it. Um, when he plainly identifies himself as the Son of God or the second person of the Trinity, when he plainly says this to them, they don't even want to consider the possibility. In their eyes, he is a man threatening their authority and their leadership in Israel. Um, for two years, Jesus' public ministry has consisted not just of a fresh perspective of the Old Testament, but of deep and wise teaching. Jesus taught with authority. He taught with, as one who was in authority over the Jewish people. And, and he's not just a teacher, but he, he teaches as you would expect a prophet to teach. And what or who is a prophet? A prophet is the mouthpiece of God. Jesus teaches his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And when he finishes, it says in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So what does that mean, not as their scribes? Well, first of all, the scribes and teachers of Jesus' day would quote the scripture. Of course, they would do that. They were teaching the law, right? But they would also quote other rabbis. And so-and-so rabbi said this or that, so the scripture means this. And Jesus also quotes the scripture, but he doesn't quote any other teacher. He doesn't quote any other rabbi. He speaks as if he is the ultimate authority. And we know that he is, right? Because he was and is the Son of God. And the people, the Jewish people, recognize Jesus' authority. They recognize it in his teaching. Really briefly, I want to look at what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Where does his authority shine through? Where are the people in awe? Why are the people in awe of his teaching? Um, it's not just because he says things like, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a, a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's a pretty bold statement 
um, for just a man to make, if he was just a man, um, as the Jewish leaders believe he is. If you make my teaching the foundation of your life, you will live well, is what he's saying here. If you, if you follow my teaching, if you follow me, if you make me the foundation of your life. And, and he's also giving two options for the foundation of life. He's teaching his teaching versus the world's. Um, are we building our lives on the rock, on him, or on the sand, which is the world's teaching? Again, pretty bold if he was just a human teacher. He says in verse 21, this is still part of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Is he saying he's the gatekeeper of heaven? Again, very bold if he's just a man. Another, another teaching in his Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. He's saying this as if he's the one promising these things. And we know, we know he is because we know who he is. He is the son of God. He is able to make these promises um, because he has the authority and the power to make these statements and these promises. And the crowd is recognizing this authority that he is claiming and that he is teaching. Here on the Sermon on the Mount and throughout Jesus' teaching ministry, Jesus teaches in a way that no other teacher taught. Again, in Matthew 7, 29, he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The scribes were the ones who made copies of the scripture. Um, they, wrote they also wrote commentaries on the scriptures. And throughout their commentaries, they add man-made teaching to, and man-made tradition, sorry, to God's word. The Pharisees were another group of teachers who examined the law to the tiniest detail. Um, when God asked the people to tithe, they would say, we need to tithe everything. Even the salt that sits in your kitchen needs to be tithed 10%. When the scribes and the, with the scribes and the Pharisees, it was rule after rule after rule. They were all about the law. Jesus also comments on the law in his teaching and in his Sermon on the Mount, but he takes it further. He makes it a matter of the heart. You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were only concerned about following the law outwardly. It was all about what you do, just doing the right things. And, and Jesus also teaches what you do matters, but he says your motives behind what you do are just as important. Giving to the poor is the right thing to do, he teaches, but doing it so that others see you is wrong. That was the motivation of the scribes and the Pharisees. They wanted people to see them being righteous, quote unquote. And, and Jesus also sets a standard for righteousness. The scriptures say, do not murder. This is Jesus teaching. Um, he teaches, do not murder, but, but anger with your brother, insults against your brother, Jesus teaches, are as bad as murder because of what's in your heart. It's the same sinful heart condition. He teaches that adultery is against the law, but even thinking about adultery, even lusting in your mind, is just as bad. 
It's the same thing. It's a matter of the heart. Guess what measure your judgment will be? Your judgment will not be compared to what others have done. You will be judged, Jesus says, according to how you have judged others. That's a terrifying statement. No one had ever taught like this before. No one had explained righteousness with such clarity with, and with such high standards. Who could live up to these standards? Nobody. Nobody. But thankfully, we, if we are followers of Jesus, our righteousness has been freely given to us. And we are not condemned, Romans 8 tells us. Anyway, I say all of this to say that for two years, Jesus' public ministry had revealed who he was. He taught with authority. He healed and he performed miracles because he had authority. People recognized his authority and they followed him. People loved Jesus and, and the leaders were afraid of that. They were threatened by Jesus because everything he stood for undermined their authority and their teaching. And Jesus also called them out. He, he called them whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but filled with death on the inside. And so you can see why they didn't have ears to hear. They weren't really interested in doing what was right. They were interested in power and earthly authority. Now, now we're here in chapter 11. And thanks to Matthew for taking us through the beginning of chapter 11. Matthew introduced introduced us to the Lazarus story. Lazarus is from Bethany, a small village outside of Jerusalem. And his sisters are Mary and Martha. And they send for Jesus because Lazarus is very sick. But Jesus waits. Um, and it's, it seems odd to us. Why would he wait? If this was as urgent as it sounded, you would expect him to leave for Bethany as soon as he hears but he waits for two days. Why does he do that? I think Matthew made that clear. It says in verse 4 of chapter 11, Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. So this is the reason that he waits. There's concern on the disciples' part, though, about going anywhere near Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is back where his ministry started. He's, he's back near the Jordan River where he was baptized by John the Baptist. He's left Jerusalem because the leaders were trying to stone him. And the disciples are concerned. They say to him in verse 8, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? They're very concerned. They're worried. In verse 16, Thomas basically says, all right, let's all go die together. Um, this is their level of concern. They saw Jesus almost get stoned. and They were there. They probably would have been caught in the crossfire. Um, and now Jesus wants to go back to that. But, but they do go back, and two, after two days, they leave for Bethany. And now we're in verse 17, and it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days. I'm not great at math, but 
Jesus may, may have actually made it there in time if he had left right away. But as we learned before this, this is an opportunity, as Jesus said, um, this whole situation is for the glory of God so that the Son of God, he, Jesus, may be glorified through it, through this situation. In fact, this story, chapter 11, is the, is the literal center of John. It's the center literally and thematically. Um, Jesus knows that going back to Jerusalem means he will die. And the disciples know this too. That's why they're afraid. That's why Thomas says what he does in verse 16. But Jesus goes anyway and he goes willingly. God will be glorified through the raising of Lazarus. I'm sure many of us are familiar with this story already. Um, God will be glorified through the death of Jesus as well. Jesus is going to face death so that there will be life. And we're going to expand on this more later, but for now, let's look at the next verse. It says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So what is the scene here? Lazarus has died. He's already been put in the tomb, and the crowd is mourning. It was custom in Israel to bury the person that had died on the same day. Um, it was custom because Israel has a warm climate, and that actually meant a fast rate of decay. And they had another custom. After one year, they would go back into the tomb. And because of the warm climate and the fast decay, all that would be left after one year would be bones. And they would collect those bones and put them into a special container and shelf them in the tomb to make room for other family members. But anyway, the scene here is that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, meaning he's been dead for four days. And since Jerusalem was so close, many of their family members and friends come to make the short journey to mourn with Mary and Martha. One commentator says that everybody would come, from your uncle to your most distant relative, your most distant cousin, everybody would come because mourning, was mourning with your family was considered a very honorable thing to do in their culture. And it also got you out of work for a few days. <laughs> I couldn't find if a family member would stay for the entire period, but typically the immediate family of the deceased would mourn for seven days. And friends and family would come throughout that time and would comfort and pray for the deceased's immediate family. And so we read that Jesus arrives at Bethany. And then verse 20, we read, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So why would we only see Martha go to welcome Jesus? Martha was likely the older sister. Verse 5 of chapter 11 says that Martha or Jesus, excuse me, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And there's a reason that Mary is not named as she is likely the youngest daughter in the family. And Martha is likely the oldest member of the family, and that's why she's mentioned first. Also, the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10 shows us that Martha is the host, which would have been a role for the eldest daughter. 
So welcoming Jesus would have been her responsibility. But why would Mary have stayed? In verse 20, Mary remained seated in the house, it says. What's not so clear to us modern English speakers is that sitting, either on the floor or a small stool, was actually the procedure for mourning. Mary was in mourning. Mary was not just sitting, she was mourning with her friends and her family. And we're going to see next week that Jesus breaks custom by calling her to come to him. But it would have been custom for friends and family to go to the deceased family member, where they are sitting, where they are mourning. The procedure for mourning meant that Mary and Martha remained at home while others came to them with food and with sympathy and comfort. So Martha was also in mourning, but in a way, Martha has also broken custom by not waiting for Jesus to come to her. And I don't think we can read into Martha's intentions too much. She and Mary had sent for Jesus, so maybe she feels like there's an obligation to go out to him and greet him as he arrives. Maybe Martha has, had sent for him and she was anxious to go out to him and, and ask him, why did you wait for two days? She's probably very curious about why he didn't come back with the messengers that she sent. In any case, Martha goes out to see Jesus and it says in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. At first glance, this passage looks like what Mary said, or sorry, what Martha says looks like she believes that Jesus can raise her brother Lazarus. But later in verse 39, she actually objects to Jesus opening the tomb when Jesus requests for the opening of the tomb. She, she, she asks him not to do that. So we can tell that she, she doesn't believe that. Most commentators believe that Martha is affirming Jesus' authority here. She knows that he has a, the ability to heal. She knows that if Jesus had been there, he would have healed Lazarus. So what is she expressing? Is she expressing disappointment? I think she is. Jesus didn't come back with the messengers who Mary and Martha had sent. He waited for two days and then made the two-day journey. It was a 10-hour journey for him, to be specific, but often people would split a 10-hour journey into two days. And Martha is grieving. She's mourning. She must be wondering why he waited. She's disappointed that he waited for two days. Wouldn't you be? We get frustrated when people don't answer a text message right away. <laughs> So Martha is, is disappointed, and there are definitely times when we, we are disappointed or frustrated with God's timing. Martha and Mary are, are, and the disciples are some of the closest people to Jesus. The disciples especially have been there with him for two years, and they still don't understand Jesus' way of doing things. Um, Matthew shared with us two Sundays ago that the disciples didn't even want to go to Bethany, right? We, we heard that before. They're afraid. But Jesus tells them clearly 
why they are waiting two days. The goal of this situation is to glorify God. And more specifically, to glorify Jesus, the Son of God. But they think, the disciples think, they're going to their death, as Thomas blurts out in verse 16. And, and now we see that Martha doesn't understand either. She's disappointed. She knows Jesus. She knows who he is. She knows he is good. But even in her disappointment, she affirms who Jesus is. She has faith in who, she, who he is. She believes in his authority, and she believes that he is the Messiah. But why would a good God allow bad things to happen? That is the real question here. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, allow a bad thing to happen? Well, we have an answer. Verse 4, it is for the glory of God. And we're going to see exactly what that means when we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Let's read verse 21. Let me read verse 21 again. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Do you remember a couple of Sundays ago I shared about Jesus challenging people's understanding of things, understanding of him? He says things that make people walk away from him. And he doesn't always correct people's misunderstandings. In John 6, the day after Jesus feeds the 5,000, they ask him for more bread. And Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. And the crowd doesn't understand. How can he, how can he be the bread come down from heaven, they say. We know his parents. We know he's from Galilee. But Jesus doesn't correct them. He continues with this metaphor. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Why would he be so graphic? He didn't literally mean that. They thought he was speaking literally, but he wasn't talking about cannibalism at all. He was talking about receiving salvation. And we know this because in verse 51, he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Jesus is pushing a little bit here. He's using a very graphic metaphor to see who really believes in him and who trusts him and who's willing to follow him. He already knows who believes and who doesn't. In verse 64 of that same passage, it says, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who didn't believe. But he's testing them for their own sake. He wants people to make a decision about him. So here we are in John 11. Martha's family was close to Jesus, but he doesn't hesitate to challenge Martha, to challenge her faith. Your brother will rise again, Jesus says in verse 23. Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha took what Jesus said, your brother will rise again, to mean that he was trying to comfort her. Maybe she had even heard something similar from her family and friends over the course of the last four days who were mourning with her um, and trying to comfort her. But this is not what Jesus means. This is an opportunity for Jesus to challenge Martha's faith in him, 
Does she really believe that he is the Messiah? And if so, what does she believe, what does she know or believe about who the Messiah is? In verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So what's happening here? Jesus makes another one of his thought-provoking I am statements. And these I am statements are confusing. Why does he say, why does he make these I am statements? Um, this is the fourth time that Jesus has made an I am statement. And each time he, he has, it's been to reveal who he is. Jesus, each time Jesus makes one of these statements, he's bringing more clarity to who he is. So far, he has stated that he is the bread of life, meaning he sustains us. We can depend on him to be our source of life. He is the light of the world. He reveals the way of true life to a world lost in darkness. He is the gate. He is the way to eternal life for those who are lost. And lastly, he, said, he had said that he is the good shepherd. Jesus cares for his sheep. And now Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he's saying this to Martha for a reason. He's challenging her concept of who he is. And he's challenging her concept of who the Messiah is. The first century Jewish concept of Messiah was an earthly ruler, an earthly king that would free the Jewish people from their earthly oppressors. But Jesus is stating here that he has authority over death. Martha understands what resurrection means, but her concept of resurrection is the end of the world when the righteous will be resurrected. But Jesus is actually saying that, sorry, what Jesus is actually saying is that the Father has given him authority to bestow resurrection life on whomever he wants. In John 5, 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus not only has authority over death, he has authority to give life, true life. Back to John 11, Jesus says to Martha that those who believe in him will live eternally, meaning that though they die physically, there will be life after the grave. At this point, I don't think Martha really understands what Jesus is saying. You see, Jesus often makes a statement or challenges someone's belief, but the people who he's speaking to, including his disciples, often don't understand until much later, until they have something's happened and they've reflected on his teaching from the past. Um, maybe until he performs a miracle like the one he's about to perform, raising Lazarus from the dead. Or until he dies and rises again. A lot of the things Jesus says and taught had to do with his resurrection and his crucifixion. And like when he says, the bread that I will give, the bread that I will give for the life of, of the world is my flesh. Nobody knew what that meant. 
I wonder how much of Jesus' teaching the disciples even understood when he was teaching them. Because so much of his teaching was tied to those two events, his resurrection and his crucifixion. After Jesus teaches about being the bread of life, about needing to eat his flesh and drink his blood, many of his followers leave. They're turned off. They're, they're offended. And he turns to his disciples at, right after this, and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They may not have understood this teaching of Jesus until much later, but they knew that he was worth following. They all initially followed him because they knew that he was worth following him. But Jesus says here, we've come to know that you are the Holy One. The disciples have followed Jesus around for two years. They've seen miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've gotten to know him. They've seen how full of love and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and joy he is. He embodies these things. These are who he is. So it's not just about recognizing that he is the Messiah. It's about recognizing that the Messiah is worth following. And here Jesus makes another frankly odd statement about himself when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he presses Martha, do you believe this? I'm not sure if she does. Because her answer is not, yes, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. Her answer is, yes, I believe you are the Christ. Martha may not understand what Jesus is telling her at this moment, but she understands who he is. And she understands that he can be trusted. And she believes in him. She believes he could have saved her brother. That's why she sent for him. But she doesn't believe that he can raise her brother from the dead. And we know this, again, because of verse 39. She protests to Jesus opening the entrance of the tomb. And Jesus' words to Martha are a challenge to her belief about who he is. And she is about to understand what Jesus actually meant by I am the resurrection and <clears throat> excuse me, I am the resurrection and the life. Can I have some of that water? Thanks. <laughs> She's about to understand what Jesus actually meant when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, when he resurrects her brother who has been dead for four days. And there are times when we don't understand the truths of God. Sometimes God, God's word doesn't make sense to us until some time passes or, or until we go through some experiences, until God works in our life that way. We can know intellectually that Jesus died for our sins, but until we experience that reality for ourselves, until we surrender ourselves to him and experience the forgiveness of sin, we don't really understand what it means. And it can be hard to understand Jesus is teaching. But thankfully, we have resources like commentaries that explain it, and we can look up a sermon on YouTube um, 
if we don't understand a certain passage. I would be careful with that, though. There's a lot of good things on the internet, but there's a lot of false teaching on the internet as well. Um, make sure that you're going to a commentary or you're looking up sermons from a trusted resource. And if you guys uh, want to know what my go-tos are, I, I'll be happy to share them with you. Um, but my point here is that we, we are to live out the teachings of Jesus. When we turn the other cheek, when we feed the hungry, when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, when we actually do these things, we do them because <clears throat> we believe that Jesus is worth following and he has commanded us to live this way, to live in this countercultural way. Maybe we don't have pure motives right away. Maybe we don't fully understand um, why Jesus wants us to live so sacrificially right away. But the longer we follow him, the more we will understand. Because he will not only begin to change our hearts and our motives, but he will make sense of his teaching in our daily lives as we live for him, as we follow him. Again, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And like Martha, we all still have a lot to discover about who Jesus is and what following him means. She is about to understand what I am the resurrection and the life actually means. Not only when her brother is raised from the dead, but when Jesus himself rises from the dead. Let's bow our heads together. <clears throat> God, we, we thank you that you are good. You are a good father. And like a good father, you challenge us to move forward, forward in our faith. Maybe some, some of us have experienced the, the death of a family member like Martha and Mary. But in our grief, in our sadness, you are our hope because you have given your son who has authority over death and he truly is the resurrection and the life. And there is hope in Jesus because he is our bread of life, our sustainer. He is our light and our guide. He is our door to true life and he is our good shepherd. I pray now, Jesus, as we remember what you have done, that you would forgive us for when we haven't trusted you, when we haven't believed that, there are, that you are, are there for us, when we haven't believed that, and when we haven't relied on you. Be our source and our guide, we pray in your name. Amen.